Let's open our Bibles to the New Testament book of Luke, Luke chapter 9, as we continue with uh, God's Word and a wonderful, amazing uh, passage is before us this morning in Luke chapter 9. As you're opening your Bibles, let me welcome those who might be watching our live stream, uh, maybe on a phone or a computer at home on a smart TV. Welcome. May God's Word bless you. We do invite you to join us here at Clifton Park Community Church. We'll be reading verses 28 to verse 36. Our sermon is, We Beheld His Glory, and we'll see that the glory of Jesus is made clear in this passage, this great event atop a mountain in the Holy Land 2,000 years ago. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Thus far we read in God's word, may he bless all who read it, believe it, and obey it. Amen. Amen. Uh, They saw Jesus in a completely different light that day on the mountain. Sometimes we're not aware of all the, the dignity and power and titles of a person who might be right next to us. I think some of that is behind the premise of uh, a TV show, and it's probably more than one version of it. It's been a while since I've heard it. It was called Undercover Boss. Is that something you've heard of? Where the the CEO of a fast food chain takes off his three-piece suit and gets out of his Rolls Royce, and and he puts on a a little uh, burger uniform and hat and maybe some makeup as a disguise, and he goes to work in one of the local stores. And as he's trying to make his french fries and his hamburgers, he's learning about his employee and the work, and they don't know that the top man is in their midst until the end of the show. And then there's a big reveal, and oh, it's the boss! Or sometimes he's discovered... And those who were not doing what they should are corrected, and those who were doing right are encouraged. But that big reveal moment. And in some of those episodes, what was amazing is, is how uh, some local guy who thought he was a bigwig was abusing the, 
the boss, and finally enough of that, he unmasks himself, reveals himself. Jesus is revealed in a full sense of his glorious person on that mountain for the benefit of his disciples and the benefit of us and also for his own encouragement. There's much to learn here as the glory of Jesus is unmasked. Let's first look at Jesus. And, and why do we do this? We, we certainly identify with Peter and we'll get to all that. But much of this event, as the scriptures reported to us, is Jesus praying and some answer coming to Jesus and some meaning for Jesus on that mount. Let's take a look at Jesus' answered prayer and his encouragements. The setting here in Luke chapter 9 is a familiar one. Jesus often invited his disciples to pray and, and often would take just a few of them with him. And he says, let's pray. Jesus himself had a robust prayer life. The Son of God spending a lot of time in prayer. That alone is instructive. But he takes just three, Peter, James, and John. And it seems that, as one said, he deemed it best for the church to have these three as sole witnesses to what would happen on the mount. Not only that, but for their futures. And we do well to remember that it's Peter who would become the lead among the twelve. We see that in the upper room in the book of Acts. James would become the first martyr, and perhaps this event strengthened him for that moment. Whatever Moses and Elijah and the Lord communicated, James had that memory as he was put to death. And then John. Why John and the three? Well, John would live the longest of the twelve. He'd write not only a gospel, but he'd write several letters to the church and live to an old age. Well, for whatever reason, Jesus takes them to pray, and he himself is there to pray. And it seems that the text is telling us in verse 29, as he, Jesus, was praying, is when this transfiguration took place. What was Jesus praying that this happened? Do you know that we have a fairly long recorded prayer of Jesus from another time and place? Do you know where that's found in the scriptures? John 17, we call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus on the night before he was crucified. After the upper room, John 17, most of the chapter, a prayer of Jesus to his father. And in John 17, verse 5, one of the things he prays is this. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Why would Jesus pray that? It's hard to use human explanations for the divine Son of God. They all fall short. Was Jesus weary of his humanity? Well, if there's no sin in it, I would say yes. Sometimes we are weary of our humanity. You may talk to an elderly woman who's lost her husband and Illness after illness, surgery after surgery says, I'm weary. I just want to go to glory. 
Jesus longed not just for the absence of something. I think, I think he was hungering for that divine and glorious fellowship in the presence of his Father. That seems to be what he was praying in John 17. And perhaps on his way to the cross, this very important prayer meeting atop a mountain, he was seeking fellowship with his Father in some glorious dimension. We don't know the words of his prayer, but we see that his brain is now connected with this event and the arrival of two visitors. Jesus is transfigured, and then he has two visitors. What happens with this? We call it a transfigure. Trans means change, and figure meaning uh, the, the, the item or the, the visage, the the essence of who he is. There are changes that take place. Well, it tells us in verse 29 that as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. What's going on? Well, as the gospel writers report it in Matthew and in here and in the gospel of Mark, these changes took place and were physically visible. His face, according to Matthew 17, 2, his face shone like the sun. I remember as a kid learning not to stare at the sun. It was a painful lesson. You can't do it for long. It's so bright. And it is, in our experience, without parallel. I'm sure you could burn some magnesium and that would look similar. It's so bright. Jesus' face turned as bright as could be. It wasn't that the light was behind him. They were standing on the mountain and maybe it was getting near sunset and the the light of the sun illuminated him from behind. You know, sometimes movie people use light in all those ways. No, the light was coming from within Jesus. It was part of his essence that was now being allowed to be perceived. And then it says his clothing became dazzling white. Dazzle? That's a great English word. The Greek word here is only used one time in the scriptures. And it means to flash forth, hence to glisten as lightning. This is bright as well. Those clothes were glowing, not from the outside, but from the inside out. This transfiguration was something different, something these disciples had never seen. They had heard a voice at baptism of Jesus, and they had seen Jesus perform miracles as he prayed and divided loaves and fishes and fed thousands of people. Probably for hours he was producing food, miraculously. They'd seen that. But this is something of his person. Douglas Milne said, normally Jesus' appearance attracted little attention. That's true. Now everything was different. Jesus' face and his clothes were suddenly bathed in a heavenly light. The light came from within Jesus and transfigured his bodily presence. The Bible, light, in the Bible, light is often the sign of God's holy presence with humanity. Here was visible, he says, evidence of God's majesty and purity in the person of Jesus. 
It's a manifestation, if you will, of the kingdom of God. Interestingly enough, last week we preached on the previous passage and it ended with verse uh, 27, which was somewhat of an enigma as we are not sure what Jesus was referring to. It was eight days prior. Jesus had said in verse 27, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And that's a bit of a conundrum because there are lots of options. What is Jesus referring to? And in studying this passage, I'm, I'm now of a better mind of what that refers to. I think the passage refers to the transfiguration. It's the same in the other Gospels where the transfiguration follows that cryptic saying, what's happening? It's a vision of the kingdom of God in the person of the king revealed and made clear. Normally, to see Jesus all shiny and glorious, you would have to be dead and meet him in heaven. So that's why Jesus seems to have said, some here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, the king in all his glory. Makes sense. It makes sense. And these three disciples, these three apostles were chosen to be a witness to that transfiguration. So it is intended in some part, when we get to talking about them, for their encouragement, for their faith to be confirmed. But here as we're talking about Jesus, does it not also answer that desire of Jesus to be in the Father's presence in the glory from eternity past? Doesn't it remind, oh, how do we put it? Remind Jesus of his heavenly home, of his Father's glory in a powerful way to have his own glory come out from him. And and again, there's Trinitarian dimensions to this that we can't even begin to broach. But there are connections. And Jesus is having his prayer answered even as his glory is manifest. And then there's the visitors. Let's look at the visitors. And behold, verse 30, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. We're told that. We don't know how they were identified to the other guys. Uh, Maybe names were used in the conversation, and that's how Peter picked it up. We just don't know. Two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. So they appeared in glory, so they were likewise had a glorified body. It wasn't like they had trudged up the mountain, having been a Rip Van Winkle for a thousand years, and now they're coming to the meet. No, they had passed away, and they come in a glorified presence themselves, not the glory of divinity, just the glory of eternity. And they are there to meet with Jesus. And I think it's an explicit answer to his prayer. So who are these guys? Moses and Elijah? We know who Moses is. We know who Elijah is. Moses is the lawgiver. That's one of his nicknames. The first great prophet of God, as it were. He led his people out of uh, Egypt to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, he met with God. He was a friend of God, received the law of God, and gave the law to the people. And there was even a prophecy 
about Moses. A greater than Moses will come who will give out God's truth and it will be written on our hearts. There are a lot of parallels connecting Jesus with Moses that I probably shouldn't wander off to the side, but here's a very quick parallel. If you've read the Gospel of Matthew, a different Gospel, do you know that its teaching sections are organized in five great sections divided by acts of miracles? As if Matthew, who seems to be the most Jewish of the four Gospel writers, with his structure, and it is written, Matthew seems to present Jesus as the new Moses giving out the word of God to the people of God and would be the one to lead them out of their sin and into the kingdom. There are parallels. That's who Moses is, the great lawgiver. We think of the law of God. The first five books of the Bible are often called the books of Moses. Isn't it written in Moses, whether it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, quick check. The Pentateuch, the books of Moses. And then there's Elijah. Who does, why Elijah? There's so many other Bible. Why not David or somebody else? No, Elijah comes to represent all of the prophets of the Old Testament. So that the two go together. You have the law and the prophets. That great summary phrase of the whole Old Covenant. As if all the Old Testament wrapped up in these two people, now is brought to the presence of Jesus. And these two visitors are there to encourage Jesus and to confirm the law and the prophets. For doesn't Jesus later say at the end of Luke's gospel, all that is written of me in the law and the prophets must be accomplished. We'll get to the Emmaus Road. But Jesus knew the law and the prophets. He knew that they all focused on him, his person and his work. And so here, the Lord God, Father in heaven, sends Moses and Elijah in answer to prayer to explain, yes, the law fulfilled in you. There's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, Jesus. You know that, as do I. The things that Moses could say and confirm as they spoke Or Elijah speaking about the great day of the Lord and putting this first coming in its perspective as apart from the second coming of Christ. This must come first, the suffering servant of Isaiah, the shepherd of Jeremiah, the one with power like Elijah. Didn't Jesus actually teach this about himself? Speaking of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, there was this line as Jesus corrected people who might misunderstand his mission and his person. Matthew five seventeen, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's summary for the whole Old Testament. Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So as Jesus had spoken of his death and starts to move towards Jerusalem, he has this day of prayer with these three disciples. As Jesus is praying, God the Father gives him that glorious moment on the mountain and sends him two visitors to confirm the plan. 
Don't let the devil whisper in your ears any longer as the devil once tried to do. Remember, the devil's pitch to Jesus was, jump through my hoops and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. No, the plan is do the will of God the Father. Redeem your people through the shedding of blood and you will be King of kings and Lord of lords. You will then inherit the name that is above every name. No shortcuts. And Moses and Elijah prepare the mediator for his work. And there's also encouragement. I break this down. They kind of confirm the plan representing the Old Testament. But now the moment has come and we're actually told in Luke chapter 9 what they specifically spoke of. They appeared in glory, verse 31, and spoke of his departure. If you're looking at the ESV, there's a footnote there and it tells you what the Greek word is. Or perhaps your translation kept the Greek word in there, exodus. If you know a few Greek letters, you can actually see that in your Greek New Testament. It looks like exodus. Wow, what an interesting word. It doesn't say they discussed the cross doesn't say they discussed death and resurrection. They, they use this term. Why did they, Moses and Elijah, use this term exodus? Well, we should know what that refers to. A bell should go off for the people of God who've read their Bible and know that in the Old Testament, the great picture of salvation was when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt through the exodus, the great exodus. Let me try to review without taking up too, too much time. Um, Because we need to know, because that's what they talked about. And that brought encouragement to Jesus, who was about to experience an exodus. Let's go back for hundreds of years uh, when God's people were in captivity. And a generation rose up. They didn't know Joseph, who had saved the world through the famine. And the Jews were growing. They lived in Egypt, but they had become slaves for 400 years. Finally, their cries reached God, and God sent a deliverer named Moses. And Moses came to Pharaoh, let my people go, that they may worship God in the wilderness. And so Moses works with Pharaoh, signs and miracles to get God's people gathered to God out in the wilderness. You know, as we think about that, doesn't that sound like Jesus? Perhaps speaking of the woman at the well, the Father seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. I've come to call many. Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Follow me. Jesus sounds a lot like that deliverer, does he not? Well, back to the Exodus story. How was it they finally got delivered? Well, the last plague on Egypt was what? The death of the firstborn child and the firstborn of the cattle in the fields as well as the home. And the only way not to have your firstborn perish whether it was you or the next generation of your children, was to do what? To take the blood of a lamb and paint it on the lintels and door frames of your house. Deliverance in the Exodus came when a substitute for the firstborn was the blood of a lamb. And God's people were delivered. They crossed the Red Sea. They came to the mountain. They met their God. And Pharaoh got what he deserved in the process. 
Now, why is that used of Jesus? The Son of God. Because now the Son is the substitute for sinners. The one true Lamb of God, His blood will become our deliverance. My friends, this is the cross. It's not a doorpost of your home, but it's the shedding of the blood of the sinless Son of God for sinners such as us. And God can see that blood and then allow repentant sinners into His presence. Jesus the great deliverer. Maybe you've never thought of the cross as a second exodus, but that language is here, is it not? God's plan was for this substitute. John had just weeks or months earlier to this event had pointed at Jesus, or it was John the Baptist. John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And then disciples were gathered unto Jesus to follow him. Here, he's presented as the key figure of a new exodus. That was God's plan, and that's what will benefit us. If you're still exploring Jesus or trying to figure out what Christianity is all about, it's that simple. Jesus is the one to deliver you from your predicament, the predicament of your sin. By his sinless life and his sacrificial substitutionary death for sinners, you can come to him and the Father will see his saving work applied to you. Repent and believe in Jesus. It's not try to be Jesus yourself. Try to deliver yourself. That's not going to happen. It's come to Jesus. Pray. Pursue Jesus. Follow him into newness of life. Well, our second uh, and only other major point this morning is let's look at the disciples here on the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration here in the middle of chapter 9. A couple of points to be made. Um, They see the glory of Christ unveiled. As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzled. And Peter, James, and John are watching and probably speechless, even Peter. There's nothing like it in the experience of humanity to see someone's divinity brought to the forefront that it's lightning bright. It's as bright as the sun. How, How do you look? The glory of Jesus was unveiled. John and Peter would both explicitly write about this. James would die a martyr without having written anything that we know of. But in John's gospel, he would say this at the beginning in John chapter 1, verse 14. He said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus, the word from heaven, son of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 14. John said, we beheld his glory. 
What an amazing moment. Some Christians are often asked, if you could go in a time machine and go back to Bible times, what event would you like to see? Some pick this. And I'd I'd make sure to get there in time to hear all that Moses and Elijah had to say. But heads up, they're probably speaking Hebrew. And Jesus. Jesus' glory unveiled. This this is way better than Undercover Boss. The one they were trying to figure out. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And they'd come to understand he's the Messiah. But to know he is Emmanuel, God with us. There's a growing apprehension among the disciples of, of who this is. As his glory is unveiled. It's a great check to any presumption that he was just a rabbi. The disciples not only gain that assurance that he is the Messiah, but they they have certain adjustments made to their understanding. First, they have that encouragement, and now they have some adjustments. Uh, Peter, when he does speak, uh, people are starting to leave, and Peter doesn't necessarily want that to happen. Verse 32, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. We not only hear what Peter says, but we've got the divine commentary. Uh, Peter was kind of babbling. He didn't really know what to say, and he didn't say necessarily what was right to say. What was Peter wanting? He wanted it to last. To, to he, and he could understand Hebrew. He could listen to Moses and Elijah. He could hear this conversation. They're beginning to connect dots, and many of them, I'm sure, were over their heads. But they're also taking in this glorious moment. He didn't want it to end. He wanted to stay on the mountaintop. And a lot of preachers, probably you've encountered sermons where they remind Christians we can't live on the mountaintop. We've got to come down to the valley. All true. And part of the corrective for these disciples was it's not just about the glory moments. It's not just about the miracle moments or the intimacy you can have with Jesus. It's about the mission while you're here. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is yet day, said Jesus. I'm glad you're with me. I'm glad you now understand who I am. But I must go to Jerusalem and die. Lay down my life and on the third day take it up again. This desire to make the mountaintop last is actually thwarting the resolve of Jesus. To go to the cross. He wasn't thinking. He did not have in mind the things of God as he spoke. Even though it's Peter. He was thinking just for the moment. Just for me. And this should resonate with Americans. Aren't we the great consumer society? We often think of what we want. And how quickly can we get it? And I still, my head spins when I think there's this giant bookstore on the internet that can get me a book, not just tomorrow, but I could even get it the same day if you pay the right price. 
We're consumers. We want what we want. And we like what we got. But we're not made for self. We're made for the glory of God. And this disciple had to have this uncontrolled desire curtailed, corrected, adjusted. Peter, it is a good thing to spend time with Jesus, nothing better, but put it in perspective. This is equipping you for your future, for your mission. When Jesus is gone, you will then remember this day. And we'll quote from Second Peter in just a moment. John would remember this day. And James. But that day was not the goal. As a Christian, how do we apply this? We we may be enjoying Bible study groups and fellowship, and we love being at church, and the rest of life is not so fun. Well, friends, let me just say it as plainly as I have to as a pastor. What happens here is so that you go out there and serve the Lord your God. If it was just all about worship and being in God's presence, wouldn't he have taken new converts right into glory? There are purposes here to be worked out in us, in the presence of the world. Jesus prayed in that high priestly prayer, John 17, I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the world. In the world, but not of the world. Okay? That's the mission for us. We need to check our desires just to be with Christians all the time. That would be a check on Rod Dreher's Benedict option. If, if some people take that to the extreme, if you know what I'm talking about, be careful not just to circle the wagons and let the culture kill itself. We're here. We're on mission. And Jesus will say, go to the nations. To us. Well, you see what that check and adjustment is for the disciples. And part of it is, thirdly, they were underestimating the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, hey, can we get you a tent? Um, uh, let me just ask, if, you, if this is for real, raise your hand. Have you ever slept outside without a tent, just under the stars? I'm curious. Okay, a few. Look around at those brave souls. And my hand goes up. I had to do it a couple of times. First time, I didn't really sleep. I just counting all the critters and watching everything. I have some stories I could tell. Why do we have tents? Well, to protect us from the dew, to protect us from critters and skeeters. And we need that because we're, our bodies are vulnerable and inadequate and et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a smart thing. Why would Moses, risen from the dead and coming from glory, or Elijah, who's got his chariot just parked around the corner, I would guess, Or the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Why would they need a tent? And we're not here just to pound away at Peter. But Peter was underestimating what he was seeing. This was for his encouragement, for his benefit to see the one who could command in the wind and the waves. I'm sure could command the mosquitoes and the critters that creep on the forest floor. All of it. Don't underestimate Jesus, even as you see him in his glory. Or Christians today, hearing this sermon, seeing Jesus in his glory through the text, let's not us underestimate him. He is Lord. 
And didn't he say to smarty pants Pilate, oh, I could ask and a legion of angels could show up and whoop you good. That's the paraphrase. Don't underestimate who the Lord Jesus Christ is. In his humanity is also his divinity and his power. If his clothes shone as lightning, it's because he's no mythological Zeus. He is the maker of heaven and earth. For by him all things were created and in him all things hold together. That's Jesus. And the Jesus who asks you to spend time in prayer, time in his word, to be his disciple, is the Lord of glory. There's no dialing that back. Don't underestimate Jesus. Later on, Peter would say this about this mountaintop. As Peter was emboldened and Peter knew how powerful the words of God were, Peter would be listening. He gets this last point really well. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, he would write this as he's explaining the apostolic ministry. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, says Peter, heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. The voice from heaven. It got Peter's attention. And he tells those to whom he writes about that. He would not underestimate Jesus in the future. One more point here, and this is a big one. The priority of listening to Jesus. We don't want to worry about the tent comment as much as what the voice from heaven in the cloud of glory has to say. The text tells us, verse 33. um, Oh, after the tent, so verse uh, 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. Let me pause. This is not a meteorological event. This is not smoke from, I can't say Canada, smoke from Lebanon coming down, and, and it's not a misty fog bank. What kind of cloud is this? My friends, it's a Bible cloud. If you know the Old Testament, when God appeared at the tabernacle, or when God filled the temple, it was the, the clouds, the effulgence of his glorious presence. When clouds descended on Mount Sinai, those kinds of clouds. Power exuding, authoritativeness manifest in these clouds. That's what was coming. Came and overshadowed them and they were afraid. Okay, so it's not just weather. As they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, this is a second time that we, they've heard this voice, or some of them have heard this voice. At his baptism, where he, Jesus came to John the Baptist, there was a voice from heaven. What did the voice say? You are, this is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. The voice was really speaking 
to Jesus, but for the benefit of others. As Jesus began his ministry, now the voice is speaking to the disciples. Slightly different. And the voice says, listen to him. Very distinct priority. To him, in the Greek here, is emphatic. To him, listen. So Peter took that to heart. Whoever it was who wrote the book of Hebrews said at the beginning of Hebrews, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, says Hebrews 1, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. This Jesus is now speaking for God. As much as you might want to chat with Moses and Elijah, listen to him. That's the priority of the moment for them and for us in this church age until Jesus comes again. We are to listen to him, obey him, and serve his kingdom. The Gospel of John describes Jesus saying this very thing, maybe in a more metaphorical sense. John chapter 10, it's the shepherd language and the sheep language. John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And what? And they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The priority of listening to Jesus. And when the things Jesus says are hard for us to hear, just reply like Peter did. Lord, to who else should we go? You alone have the words of life. Jesus may ask hard things, but he offers up himself and every help needed to obey. Well, those are our two main headings this morning from this amazing text. Let's Close with just a few observations and I'll be brief. Um, First, be assured that Jesus is the glorious Son of God. Be assured that Jesus is the glorious Son of God. Douglas Milne again says, We may learn from this transformation that Jesus normally refused to draw directly on his divine nature, choosing instead to live within the limits of his humble humanity, But here, for a few moments, the order is reversed, and the splendor of his deity overlays his humanity. He is who he claims to be. He is who he claims to be. Be assured. Secondly, give honor. Give him the honor he deserves. Give him the honor he deserves. Don't just witness or believe his majesty, his glory, but reply to him and and let Jesus define himself. Sometimes we we just pick and choose what we want to know and appreciate about Jesus or we turn to our favorite passages of the Bible. He is Lord, both Savior and Lord. Give him the honor he deserves. And I think part of the way that will be helpful is Don't just remember Jesus in your mind. 
during his incarnation, when he's shuffling around the the paths of Galilee or, or with those disciples in a boat, don't just let those pictures be the sum total of your understanding of Jesus. Perhaps you need to reread Revelation chapter 1 when John was having an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And he saw Jesus in his glory as he is now at this moment just like this. On turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the rush, the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, And his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. That's the current picture of Jesus. If he's just in a a workaday robe with his band on the road, you don't give him the honor he deserves. He is risen. He's risen from the dead. He's conquered. He is exalted. He is seated at the right hand of God on high. Maybe this is the point you need to stir up your Christian life and to rise above any mediocre service you've offered him is to understand he is Lord and he's going to look like that when he returns and you want to be ready to see him. So live now knowing that Jesus. Further. Don't desire glory before your mission is done. Peter wanted to stay on the mountaintop. There was more to do. I think there's a takeaway for us. Jesus would come down from the mountain. He'd continue to Jerusalem. He'd go to the cross. He would do all that his father gave him to do. We have work to do. It's not all here singing our songs and enjoying the Bible and and passing the time in sweet fellowship. We need to deploy to be present in this world. Finally, always remember the supernatural kingdom of Jesus is real and near. Moses, Elijah, they're, they're alive even now. And there's a whole bunch like them. David, Samuel, uh, Noah, a lot of greats. They're alive and well because the reality of the spiritual kingdom of God is true. And those that are his are alive and well at this moment. And it's near. Moses and Elijah showed up with Jesus. There's but, as people have said, a thin veil between this world and the next. Understand that Jesus and his glory and that kingdom is very real. That kingdom is just breaking in in bits and pieces here and there. And sometimes it's hard to see that. But know it's real and it's coming. And someday every eye will behold and every knee will have to bow to this Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this brief encounter of our own with the transfiguration of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. What a moment! And Father, may we be teachable from your word with your Spirit's help to grasp the glory of Jesus 
and may it correct and adjust our faith appropriately. May we not underestimate or dishonor Jesus in any way, but may we be emboldened in our faith in him, our risen, conquering Savior and Lord. Father, we thank you for Peter, James, and John for their later faithfulness and giving of their lives in the kingdom's work. May we follow faithfully as well. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.